This 150th episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Super Bowl specials. Boys, there's a lot going on out in the restaurant world this week with uh, Always is. companies gearing up for the Super Bowl. What's, uh, Franklin, what caught your eye as a great Super Bowl special? Throw a curveball right now. When we were at the uh, hospitality suite at the conference, we had just eaten dinner. But Taco Bell had laid out an entire spread. I was full. I couldn't eat it. And in the I, hospitality suite. I've yeah. been thinking about that ever since. Carson, you would have lost your mind. There was probably 500 tacos It was, it was quite out. spread. I, I might have been able to Nacho eat bowls. one or two. Yeah, I mean, it was – so I'm going Taco Bell. I don't care what's going on. I've been thinking about it for four days since then. Carson, what Super Bowl it, special it, caught your eye? Here's the headline, right? If if the game goes into overtime, it is a chicken wing bonanza for America. So I think Buffalo Wild Wings, Hooters are, are kind of trying to one-up another. What are the other. odds the game goes into overtime? Probably not good, but yeah. if it does, I think – there's only, there's only one overtime, one Super Bowl, one overtime. But if it does, both of them are offering free wings. So there have been some creative things. The the Red Lobster, uh, what was it? The snack, the, the snack claw. It's the it's snack a lobster claw. claw on the end of a you know. A there's there's only been that, one Super Bowl that's going to gone to overtime. Yeah, I think it wasn't. That's the, amazing. Uh, Atlanta and uh, in New England a couple of years ago. That's amazing. If it goes into overtime, I guess probably statistically about right. You know, with one out of fifty-four games, you know how many overtime games you get during a season. You know, so that's probably about about par for the course. Anyway, lots of lots of restaurant companies getting very involved in the Super Bowl world this weekend, um, and so go patronize your favorite restaurant. Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We and we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the Iowa caucuses are just a few days away, and we'll take a look at what's likely to happen there and how it will affect the process going forward. And another old friend drops by from the D.C. bubble. This week, Jason Strzeski, the Vice President of Government Relations and Political Affairs for the National Retail Federation, stops by to talk about 2020 and his organization's priorities for the year. And this week, we got to meet Therese Gerhardt, the new president and CEO of Women's Food Service Forum. She stopped by our pod booth, and we talked about her new role and her plans for the organization going forward. We'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my aligned partner, Franklin Coley, and we are recording live from Black Box Intelligence Conference in Dallas, Texas. And Franklin, it's a big week this week. Big week next week, I guess. It's your Super Bowl. It is a Super Bowl. It's the Iowa caucuses, my friends. They uh, kick off on Monday night. And uh, it's Super Bowl time. The entire presidential race will look different by the time we're broadcasting next week. So I can't wait, to be honest with you. I love, I love, I love, I love early primary season. So what are you, what are you doing Monday night? Like you have pizza, pizza and beer, a little popcorn, as, well, as you watch television, the returns. What's the Coley method? I'll be locked into the couch. But the caucus is typically like stretching for a while. But I will be It'll locked. until like 7 o'clock at night. Yeah, and then, you know. Some of them will go on for hours, and then it, you know, will take a while to report. And so, you know, it, it takes a while. But I will be up watching. What do the polling numbers suggest? It looks pretty tight out there. You know, caucuses are notoriously hard uh, to poll. You know, for it's such a closed deal. Number one, number two, this year is completely different. They have all these satellite caucuses and all this stuff, and the ranked choice 
you know, for lack of a better term, is a, is a little different this year. And for that reason, too, the way that caucuses are structured, if you're one of the bottom candidates and your guy gets eliminated or gal gets eliminated, then you get to choose and go caucus with someone else. For all these reasons, notoriously difficult to poll, but... Sanders and Biden are basically in a dead heat, and they have kind of, at least in the most recent polls, separated from the pack. So whoever wins will have the big mo heading into New Hampshire, and in Democratic primaries, winning the Iowa caucuses, oftentimes a pretty strong predictor of who's going to win the entire shebang, the entire race. So this is an important contest. So to your point, the last couple... Hillary Clinton won the Iowa caucuses in 2016. Barack Obama. Barack Obama won unopposed, obviously, in 2012. He won in 2008. So the Democrats have been, you know. Kerry. Kerry won in 2004. Gore won in 2000. But on the Republican side, totally different battle. Who won the the Iowa caucuses? Santorum won last time. No, Ted Cruz did. Ted Cruz won in 16, Santorum in 12, okay. Huckabee in 08. I mean, it's, it doesn't really matter that much for the Republicans. But it's, it's not as predictive for Republicans. But Republic. it's been important for the Democrats. So, Franklin, give me a prediction. What do you, what do you think the outcome is going to be? I'll ask you two questions. Who do you think is going to win, A, and B, who do you think is going to exceed expectations? So, well, I'm going to give you credit, but we'll see if credit's due or not come next week. But you said from the beginning that Biden was going to win this thing, and I – have disputed that all along and of course the only thing I had on my side there was history but I think Biden is going to win this thing and you know he and Bernie are in a dead heat I think a lot of those people when they're in their second you know choice candidates I think Trump scares the heck out of people I think it, it makes them moderate and kind of go for I think Biden's going to win so we will see you've made the point repeatedly that you know, Democratic primary voters who have traditionally kind of voted with their hearts on different issues, and they favored this candidate because of their education standard, environmental standard, this candidate because of their union, but whatever it was, that it appears there's a lot of data coming out of Iowa that voters are saying, are putting their personal thing aside and saying, and being pragmatic and saying, who is the best person to beat Donald Trump, which is not that kind of rational pragmatism doesn't often rise up in a, in a primary. Democrats are not known for their rational pragmatism. <laughs> well done, sir. No, there's definitely been discussion around that. And I think some people would dispute that. But you know what? In a week, we're going to know, right? All the polling up until Monday in Iowa doesn't matter. The big poll will be Monday. And then I think it's a week later. We're in New Hampshire and two weeks after that in South Carolina and Nevada is somewhere in between. So we're off to the races, baby. Well, I think, you know, I think with all these candidates and all this money, there's going to be a lot of turn. I think that I think there'll be a lot of turnout for the I think numbers will be up in terms of turnout for the caucuses. So it'll be interesting to watch. Who do you think is going to exceed expectations? Which person is polling fifth that will come in second? Or what person's polling fourth that will come in? You know, there's always somebody that gives you an aha, that, that puts a little life back in their campaign. Who do you think it's going to be? That's very true. I, I don't know. know. I, 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 I Amy Klobuchar has a strong organizational ground game. She, and that, she speaks Midwest. And that, and that could spell trouble also for Biden. Like, she, could, she can steal votes from Biden. But so I think... She will do well. I'm not that high. I just don't feel like Mayor Pete or Elizabeth Warren are surging right now. You know, I, I don't know. I think Klobuchar may be the one that, that sneaks in the mix. I, I think Bloomberg has to overperform. 
I think Bloomberg has to make a mark bigger than expectations for him to be. I mean, he's going to be viable because he has the money to, but I'm, I'm going to be really watching Bloomberg. I know he's put tons of operatives on the ground in Iowa. He's got staff up to kazoo in Iowa. And if nothing comes from all that expenditure of staff and money and he still gets nothing out of it, that's going to be a major body blow. If he were to place third or even fourth, I think that would be a big storyline. And I, I think he'll be down in that f- fifth range. I think he's playing the long game. I think because he's he's counting in the Floridas and Californias and that expectations are really, really dead low for him in Iowa. And even like having a blip in the radar is okay. He can survive to live another day. And then he'll play in the big states where he can outspend. And uh, people have tried that strategy before and it has not worked out for them because you get so much momentum coming out of these early states. It'll be interesting to see how it works out for Bloomberg this go around. But I, he could be one that, that is a storyline. I don't think he will be. I think he'll barely survive Iowa to live and fight another day. And, Joe, we've talked about this a lot before on numerous podcasts now, but now that we're in the thick of the Democratic presidential primary, it's worth mentioning again, regardless of who emerges from this process, we essentially have total agreement across the Democratic primary field on a lot of our core business model issues. And in particular, and you mentioned in your your, uh, time on stage at the Black Box Conference that we have Joe Biden, you know, the the moderate voice in this process, essentially a couple weeks ago at a Fight for 15 event calling for uh, the unionization of McDonald's, right? So that's kind of where the entire field is. And so regardless of who comes out of this process, it's probably going to be a rough road for us going forward. So, Franklin, as we said in the opening, we have a special guest, one of our best buddies all time, coming back to the pod room to kick it around with you and me, Jason Strzeczewski. Remember back at IFA back in the day and now with National Retail Federation? Yeah, he's uh, he's our stand-in bubble boy, although I think he uh, he rejects that title. I do reject that title. Jason, how are you, how are you guys doing? We're doing great, Good. pal. We're Good. doing great, and appreciate you taking the time. So, uh, for the for the audience, once again, Jason Shatesky is the Vice President of Government Relations and Political Affairs at the National Retail Federation. Jason, we talk as much about restaurants as anything, but restaurants are food retailers. We talk a lot about the, the retail world as well. And I know a lot of our audience are members of your organization, either directly with NRF or National Council of Chain Restaurants. So you follow these issues as close to anyone. And so, you know, we just wanted to get your take to, to start off kind of 2020. The legislature's kicked in two, three weeks ago. Some of them are rounding into shape. What are the big issues from a National Retail Federation perspective? What are you focused on? What's keeping you awake at night at state level across the country? Thanks, Joe. And Joe and Franklin, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you guys uh, having me on the pod today. It's always a pleasure to talk to the Align team. Uh, For 2020, the National Retail Federation hopefully doesn't have too much that's going to keep us up late at night. Uh, but there's a couple of policy areas we're going to keep an eye on as the year progresses. First and foremost, top priority for our guys is consumer data privacy. Data drives pretty much everything retailers and restaurants do to connect with their customers, to earn their customers' trust, and to serve their customers where they are. So that'd be number one. Close number two always is workforce issues. That goes everything from traditional labor policy to the future of work and to workforce development. And then we're going to try and keep an eye out uh, for any new and emerging issues coming around the corner that impact the industry, whether 
Uh, it has to do with how the consumer interacts with a retailer restaurant, what that has to do with tax policy. The other policy we're going to keep a close eye on and monitors it develops and we know is bubbling up starting in the states, the states are leader in this space, are sustainability and packaging initiatives, from whether it's revamping recycling systems at the state and local level or we're trying to change things in the supply chain uh, when it comes around packaging sustainability. That's going to keep you busy, my friend. That's uh, that's a busy 2020. You know, one of the things that we've been knocking around, Jason, and uh, I think probably you are going to be more expert in this than many out there. And so I'd ask you to maybe dig into this a little bit more is the data privacy piece. And I, you know, I think for all retailers, this should be a front center issue. I'm not sure it is because I think often the labor and employment policy stuff gets the most attention. But tell us the state of play. I mean, California passed this law. It, it seems from just the reporting that it is a total mess. And since then, we've had a couple other states kind of follow California's lead, although my understanding is, you know, that legislation is a little different in some ways. So so give us, kind of set the table. You know, is California going to open this back up? What are the states that you feel that are going to be following their direction or maybe hopefully going in a little different direction? Just give us kind of the lay of the land as we head into, uh, you know, state legislative sessions here. Yes. As everybody knows, California has acted. They passed the California Consumer uh, Protection Act. It uh, went into effect on January 1st of this year. I believe the state AG and, and the government out there won't be fully enforcing the law till later this year when a, when they put out some more concrete, when they have some more concrete rules around how folks have to comply. But in the meantime, businesses are getting into compliance and they're doing what they can to uh, follow the law. Like it or not, that law will essentially become the law of the land for many operators around the country, especially large national businesses and chains that have uh, operations in nearly all 50 states. So they're going to have to upgrade their systems and, and, and comply with that law, so it's going to change the landscape. Other states are not going to wait. Uh, they're not going to wait to see how California plays out. I think there's at least a dozen states so far that have uh, tossed out Consumer Privacy Acts, uh, their, their own proposals. Some are loosely based on the California law. Some are based on previous laws they've debated in prior sessions. And those states are not going to wait because the federal wait for the federal government to step in, uh, just like California did not. So we're going to keep an eye on uh, the states that are most likely to act. Uh, the first and foremost is probably going to be Washington State up in the Pacific Northwest. They've already uh, held two hearings on their legislation out there. And we expect, you know, a, a half a dozen or so other states to possibly start their process, legislative process this year. But one of the good things for us is it's an election year. Uh, it's compressing some of the state legislative calendars. This year, so we don't expect a great number of states to copycat or mimic or try to build off of what California did, but we expect, you know, a handful, two or three or four, uh, might try to get a bill to their governor. Jason, for, you know, what's going on, obviously, in all facets of the economy with delivery and Amazon and, you know, you, you know everything with third-party delivery, especially in so many... Every day, it's more and more part of the restaurant world. If I use, you know, Uber Eats or DoorDash to order a meal from some big national chain, and there's all this data compliance, who who's in charge of compliance when it comes to the privacy of that transaction? Does DoorDash own that data and that compliance? Does you know Olive Garden own that data and that compliance? What's so if I'm the average restaurateur, what do I need to be afraid of in that space? Great question, Joe. Sometimes it's unclear to both the consumer and smaller businesses who's in charge of that data. Uh, as you pointed out, a lot of uh, restaurants and retailers are using other service providers to provide a service that the customer expects, whether it's delivery or 
you know, buy online pickup in store or curbside pickup in those spaces. And those third-party providers that provide that uh, service, they're obviously transacting with the retailer or restaurant. Uh, they're processing the consumer's information. And right now, across most of the country, that the person in control of that is the contract between the the business owner and the uh, third-party provider that's providing that service. And that's what's kind of happened out there is the consumer's not fully aware of those arrangements and agreements. And hopefully what these laws will do is provide some transparency for consumers so that they are informed of the categories of their data that businesses are collecting and how they're using it to serve them. And hopefully that transparency will show that in the retail and restaurant space, it's a very competitive space. And these businesses uh, take their consumers' privacy and information very seriously because uh, that's a, a personal one-to-one relationship. If you don't like how that business is treating you, you can go right across the street and shop somewhere else or, or dine somewhere else. I think of the, the genesis of a lot of this has been a lot of those unknown actors online out there, whether it's in uh, the social media, data, and you know, Internet spaces, where folks aren't aware of these these different groups and businesses and what what data they're collecting on them and how they're using it. But we hope that these laws will bring about more transparency so the consumer can understand who has their data, where it is, and why it's being used that way to serve them. And a two-part question kind of related. The first piece is, you know, related to this conversation that, that you and Joe just kicked off here, the customer loyalty programs, which has been a big concern of a lot of uh, restaurants and retailers in that it has been swept into this, you know, broader kind of consumer privacy effort, whereas the traditional loyalty programs, uh, I think some would argue, were were not the targets of uh, these policymakers. Do you expect that those will be exempted out of California and some of these other states um, that's the first part. And then the second part, and I kind of know the answer to this, but I just want to throw it out there. You know, what are the chances for a federal fix to this, essentially? You know, what are the chances that members of Congress can put aside impeachment, 2020 elections? <laughs> if you have uh, to laugh in the middle yeah, of the question, yeah. I think you know the answer. Yeah. So, you know, g- give us the latest and greatest and the efforts in D.C. too, um, which hopefully would clean up a lot of this stuff if we could get it together in D.C. But anyway. Well, Franklin, we'd agree with you there on that one, that part on the final part of your uh, multi-part question there. I'll start with that. Uh, on the federal side, we're hopeful that the federal government can take action, bipartisan action, to kind of sort this out and provide one national blueprint for how uh, consumer data is handled and processed, both within states and across state lines. Uh, but that's not going to happen in 2020. At the earliest, we feel that the federal government will be compelled to act hopefully in 2021 after the election. There's been a lot of fits and starts to the process here in D.C. There are some bipartisan proposals out there. Staff are working on a bipartisan basis to put out platforms or policy proposals uh, that their bosses have signed off on. But we just don't see the, the wherewithal there or the calendar there to allow lawmakers to seriously consider a national uh, consumer privacy protection bill uh, that will provide a clear br- blueprint for all of our businesses that are operating across state lines. So the other piece was much more narrow, which is um, these customer loyalty programs. You know, um, customers come and they sign up in the store to get their customer loyalty card, and every eight meals they get a free one, or you know whatever the or sign up online for that matter. These are opt-in type programs that the customer is very aware that they're signing up and, and joining, as opposed to I, I think some of the some of the targets and oftentimes this information is not sold or 
you know, repurposed in some way. It, it, and a lot of these programs have been caught up in this broader net in California and elsewhere. Has there been discussion in California or some of the other states that are acting about exempting those programs or drawing a bright line of distinction between those types of programs and other issues that the regulatory regime is intended to, uh, to target and tackle? So the, the customer is boss. Our data and our members' experience show us that uh, the customers know what they're doing. They know to them personally on an individual basis what is valuable for them to what, – what information of theirs is valuable for them to exchange with a merchant, a retailer, a restaurant, uh, what have you, in exchange for services, goods, product discounts, uh, loyalty reward points. So we would ultimately like policymakers around the country and at the national level to have a better understanding of that and to make sure there's a space within these laws for that to continue. You're correct that the California law that's currently the law out there makes it much more difficult for a retailer or restaurant to offer a loyalty or rewards program. They're still doing it based on our anecdotal evidence, you know, since the law has gone into effect a couple weeks ago. Uh, they're finding ways to continue to offer that while making sure they're they're disclosing and their privacy policies the new rights that consumers have out there. But the way some of these laws were crafted to try to crack down on on bad actors, as you mentioned earlier, they've unfortunately caught up these unintended consequences that could end up damaging or hurting popular consumer programs. Whether if you shop multiple times in one place, you can get a discount somewhere else, such as at fuel and convenience stores. You can often get a a gas discount by being a frequent shopper at another store location. Those programs were a little bit concerned might get caught up in these new laws and regulations. But we want policymakers to understand the customer is boss. They're very full aware of when they provide their personal information, what benefits they're going to receive in exchange for that. And they also trust retailers and restaurants to protect that information. Uh, we our, our internal studies and polling show that customers do find that retailers and restaurants and small businesses on Main Street USA are very trustworthy, um, and they understand that it's a competitive marketplace and that they have choices and options about where they shop, how they buy, how they're served. So they expect retailers to take care of their information. And we want to make sure that these standards that are coming out provide a space so that customers can still maintain these loyalty and rewards programs that allow them to stretch their family shopping dollars as far as they can. Shifting gears, if you will, Jason, one of the other big issues, but I would say I think with the restaurant community, it's probably it's probably further down the line. It's not front burner for them, although we often – think we would argue that it was. But I think for retailers, it's more front burner. And that would be the independent contractor issue. And, uh, you know, AB5, and then the, the various other iterations of that that are under consideration across the country, notably in New York, New Jersey, and I guess shortly here in, in Illinois, and probably some other places. This impacts all retailers, you know, even though, you know, Truck drivers were just exempted out in California, which is a big win. That's obviously a big part of the supply chain, but there's other impacts. You know, in your in your day-to-day, you know, all the, the issue portfolio you're looking at and when your members are weighing in and saying this, that, and the other are top priorities. I know that data privacy is obviously, you know, top of that list, but we're just kind of AB fall, AB5 and, and similar bills. Where do they fall in the pecking order? How much time and energy y'all focused on that? What are you worried about in those bills? Just talk to us generally about the independent contractor issue that in the past year here, because of California, has gone from basically zero to 100. Absolutely. When it comes to AB5 and independent contractor issues, I think the first and foremost of the impacts to the retail industry 
is the trucking industry, uh, the supply chain, and making sure that products can move quickly and expediently from our ports to our stores to our distribution centers and to the customer where they ask for it to be delivered. So it's my understanding that out in California, through the courts, the, the, the trucking industry has a little bit of a stay of execution, so to speak, and it sounds like they'll hopefully be able to get their industry squared away and possibly carved out of the new law there so that independent trucking organizations and, and drivers can continue to work in the way works best for them. Downstream, uh, in the retail store, in the distribution centers, uh, in corporate headquarters, retail is constantly evolving and constantly innovating. And one of the things that concerns us about uh, not only AB5, but other states looking to uh, follow in their footsteps out there in California is what it might do downstream to how today's worker uh, approaches the industry. The reason why retail and restaurant jobs are so popular uh, and continue to be so is we offer flexibility. Uh, whether you're in high school, college, or in the middle of your career, career transition, or even post-career and you're, you're nearing retirement, uh, our industry provides opportunity to everybody uh, across the spectrum and allows you to work on a schedule that meets your needs for your life and your family's life, as well as your, your needs beyond work and the opportunities and benefits they provide uh, for skills, training, and uh, college education and earning credits uh, or certifications that you can take with your career uh, beyond. So we are a little bit concerned about how the, the ABC test put into the independent contractor laws in certain states, starting with California, is too concrete and wooden and, and stiff, and it's, it's a 1940s, 1950s workplace scenario being driven into the 21st century. And we want to make sure that we're, our members are able to continue to offer job opportunities uh, in the way that today's current workforce is approaching the job opportunity, a career opportunity. Jason, that's a, a perfect segue to the, the next question, set of questions. Um, you talk about opportunity and skills building jobs. The National Retail Federation has been, um, you know, to my my opinion, very innovative when it comes to some of the workforce development programs that, that you guys have been involved in, the manager training programs. And you have a just a wide library of, of, of programs and opportunities curriculum. Um, can you kind of talk to us a little bit about the things that you're doing in the retail world to help not only employers re- retain and att- attract and retain employees, but help people move up in upward mobility? What, what are the things that the retailers are focused on in that space? Uh, at the NRF, we're very proud of our uh, NRF foundation and the programs that it's offering in this space for the workforce and the retail and restaurant workforce. There's a lot of great, exciting things to go going on over at the foundation. I don't want to take up too much of everybody's time, but if your listeners are interested, they should check out NRF Foundation. Dot org to learn more. I'm just going to talk about one of the programs, and that's the Rise Up program. Uh, the Rise Up program is, a, is our training and credentialing program. It provides foundational employability skills that will help people land jobs and get promoted, uh, not only in our member stores but beyond. Uh, the curriculum and exams that are part of the Rise Up standard are industry-recognized and were developed in close collaboration uh, with more than 20 retailers and restaurant companies. And we're pretty proud of this program, and it's here to help job seekers take that first step and earn an industry-recognized tr- uh, credential and get some training. We ha- think that this will build confidence, and it will eventually build careers, and it creates a great opportunity for folks uh, who are looking to get that, that first job on the ladder so that they can get in there and find that next job. That's, that's great stuff. You know, I, I think we've got such an opportunity with – 
you know, what's going on at the federal level with so many governors prioritizing workforce development. We just got opportunity after opportunity to not only be relevant in that space and, and help our companies and our communities, but we really got an opportunity for the first time in a long time to kind of grow political capital for, you know, the general retail industry as we kind of step up to that role in workforce development and, and create, you know, in opportunity building and so forth. So it's the biggest opportunity in a long time, you know, in, in my career to kind of build meaningful, sustainable political capital. So I applaud what, what you all are doing, what NRF is doing. Franklin, you got something to add to that? I mean, I would say the this is retail campaign that y'all have been undertaking for some time now syncs perfectly with that. And you're right. It, it not only is it great for employers within their four walls, not only is it great for communities, but it, and not as only great for individuals, but it's a great platform from which to talk to elected officials about the industry. So that's it's good to hear and, and keep up the good work. Thank you, gentlemen. I'll leave you with one stat on the workforce development side of things. We know that 71% of hiring managers, regardless of industry, appreciate and a candidate with retail experience on their resume and on their background. Retail and restaurants used to deal with everybody that comes through the door. Customer is number one. Customer service is number one. So we think that this program will offer a fresh start and a way forward for millions of American job seekers out there. And, yes, we are definitely partnering with governors, as you pointed out, and state and local governments. Uh, we've, we've got whole states that have endorsed the Rise Up for approach offer its credentials and training systems side-by-side with other workforce training uh, and development programs in the states, in high schools, in public schools, and in community colleges. So it's a great story to tell, uh, and it's a great uh, opening when you go in to meet with lawmakers about a tough-ish, tougher issue. They always like to talk about what's going on with the workforce, and the work of the foundation and Rise Up in particular gives us a great opening edge uh, when we go in to have those more difficult conversations and other public policies. Well, Jason, that's, that, that's good stuff. Um, two things I will leave you with. A, the, I'm impressed by the 78% of employers. Uh, I, I want to ask, where the hell are the other 22% that wouldn't appreciate those skills in that background? Uh, you know, I, I, I thought it was actually kind of a low number, so you to, to be applauded on that. And secondly, you may have read in the paper here recently that we're having a little football game down here in Florida this weekend. Who's, who's Jason betting on this weekend? Jason is a uh, long-suffering but happy warrior New York Jets fan. And since the New England Patriots are nowhere to be found in that game, I'm happy as can be with whoever wins. You're a, you're a winner. You've you're already won. Regardless. Yeah. I'm winning at life right now when it comes to the National Football League. Franklin, that's a D.C. Trade Association version of not taking a position on this thing. and. Finding the halfway point. Where, where are the Redskins, by the way? The Redskins are playing golf like any regular team does this time of year. <laughs> That's right? what they do. That's what they do. That's what yeah. they do in February. Jason, my friend, thank you. Much appreciated. Love the insights. And I uh, hope you'll come back soon and um, give us an update on what you're working on out there. Thank you both. Glad to be here and appreciate you having me today. So, Franklin, we made our, we made our way to Dallas here at the uh, – Global Best Practices Conference, Black Box Intelligence, the former TDN2K, the newly christened Black Box Intelligence. I'm a fan of the new name, to be honest. The the, the old one was was tough to get your arms around, especially for people that weren't used to it. It was it was it took a while to kind of kind of work that that it, title. It in only here. took me like three or four years, but yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I like Black Box. Great conference. We've been coming here forever, and you're always in the main stage, Joe. I'm, and, I'm quite the showman. Uh, indeed, you are. And uh, yeah, it's a good good conference. Been great this far. So a couple a couple takeaways from this 
conference, it's amazing how much time the, the conference has spent talking about technology. Technology in recruitment, technology in training, technology in all aspects of the business and third-party delivery and data. It has really been less about general HR practices and more about technology and data and data transfer. It's been kind of fascinating. I would say the tools of HR practitioners. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about how using these new tools that are out there to uh, strengthen HR practices and really disrupt. I mean, you know, when you think of HR, it's like you don't really think of disruption, but that's what a lot of these conversations have been about. And of course, Joe, you were in the big stage to give a political update to everyone. A little political and, update. Uh, and earlier in the day, I did a little issue update on some of the key issues. So um, it, it, I think it's been a great conference, well attended, a uh, lot, of, lot of energy. Um, but I do think there's a genuine sense that, you know, competing for customers, people are getting stressed about what's going on in the macro, in the industry and how nimble people are going to have to be to maintain their competitive advantages. It's, it's just been, it's, I think it's been fascinating conference. Yeah, one of, and one of the things that we've talked about are some of these bundle of issues that employers are going to have to tackle. One of them is uh, discrimination or ensuring that there is no discrimination, ensuring there, there is opportunities for everyone. And one of the leaders that is here in that, that space is the Women's Food Service Forum, which we... Uh, we're lucky enough to grab the CEO and con her in to uh, to joining us for a little session. I think it was just more of an invitation. I don't know about a con. She she was not familiar with the pod, but she is now. She but is we had, now. So we had a really good conversation uh, with Teresa Gerhardt, who is the new head of the Women's Food Service Forum. I want to uh, let the audience give a, give a heads up that her audio quality was good. Mine was not so good. We're kind of potting on the fly here in the hallway, a little media row here. And so it's unclear if that was due to the host, due to the environment. Could have been a producer issue. I don't know. We don't know. I don't know. But uh, no but, casting aspersions. But it is what it is. And uh, you and you don't really need to hear Joe's blathering anyway. So you know his his questions, her key points come through loud and clear, and that's really what you need to be keying in on anyway. Yeah. So we talked about her background. Uh, she's a veteran of Coca-Cola Company, her leadership in this space, where she plans to take the organization, and what value prop she has for her members and what she's trying to help her members achieve. So let's go to that audio. Again, our apologies. Stick with it. It's, it's a good interview, and she is a really, really sharp new leader of this organization. So we are joined here on Working Lunch today. We have a special guest that has literally dropped by our live pod it's not really a pod room, frankly. It's a pod booth, pod setup. It's a pod table and a hallway. It's <laughs> a pod table and a hallway. But nonetheless, uh, Therese Gerhardt has stopped by to talk to us a little bit. And Therese, you may know that name, is the new president of the Women's Food Service Forum, which is an organization that um, I've been in and around for a lot of years. I remember my Darden days. I participated in meetings, and it was a big deal at Darden uh, when I was there. We were strong supporters and participants in that organization. Chris, you have a, an amazing background. You have worked for one of the biggest brands in the world, literally all over the world. Can you kind of tell us your background and how you got from there to Women's Food Service Forum? Absolutely, I'd love to. So I have been fortunate enough to work for some fantastic companies. Even with Coca-Cola prior, I was in consumer durables with Black & Decker. Uh, technology with Motorola, and then I spent my last 20 years with a fantastic company called the Coca-Cola Company, and traveled around the world with the good fortune of being a senior executive 
running several of the business units in sub-Saharan Africa, a uh, business unit we call Latin Center, um, and also in North America where I worked inside our food service business unit, which got me seven years close to the food industry. So in my journeys and how I ended up with Women's Food Service Forum and my passion for this space, I actually came across Women's Food Service Forum during the time when I led the marketing unit of our food service division, actually sat on the board at that time and experienced my first conference during that window of time. Went on to lead, uh, co-chair the Women's Leadership Council for the Coca-Cola Company, which is an advisory council to the chairman, the CEO, and guiding them on strategies for accelerating and advancing retaining women. So I've always been very passionate in the space, and when the opportunity to lead with the Women's Food Service Forum came about, I couldn't think of any better way to bring all my passion points together than the love for an industry that I fell in love with back when I had the chance to work in the food division, to uh, leading women's um, efforts and role modeling those across the globe for Coke straight into the Women's Food Service Forum with the opportunity of impacting a lot more women in this journey and helping an industry impact and show other industries how it can actually get done. Well, it's no surprise with that background that you would you know, become a leader in an organization like that. When I was at Dart and at Walmart, we were close partners with Coke, who Coke you know, yeah. you know, uh, products. But Coke was always, Coca-Cola company, I should say, uh, not the Bob, not Coca-Cola Enterprises, but Coca-Cola company, uh-huh. uh, was always very generous in sharing. Uh, we would often, even at Dart and Walmart, make trips to Atlanta and benchmark and benchmark with their teams and they were, they were always good about sharing best practices yeah. and working with their supplier partners and they were using just it's a great company to work with. My other thing I love about Coca-Cola and Franklin can attest to this if you open the fridge in our kitchen at the office Franklin what do I have? Tab. Tab Cola. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, got, he's got VHS tapes of the Brady Bunch and Tab Cola. Oh, tab Cola. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> sleeves a week and I got you There you go. Um, so you're new now at Women's Food Service Forum. You came in November. Yes. Uh, and we had two holidays and a new year. Exactly. Uh, so what are your priorities? What do you what do you want to keep about the organization? What do you want to build on? What do you want to change and pivot to? What's the plan for you for the next couple of years? Yeah, so the way I like to think about it is the the mission is solid. You know, we're working to accelerate the advancement of women across the food ecosystem. I like to add that we want to do that representation in a sustained way. It tends to be the difficult part in delivering that mission is making sure that you not only accelerate uh, the advancement of women, but we get to balanced representation and we hold balanced representation in a sustained way. The way I like to think about where we're headed is we're known for delivering really leading edge and premier uh, development content for women as they advance through their careers and a lot that comes through programming like our national conference that's upcoming March 29th. But we're opening up using technology to what I like to say is being your inspiration for more moments. So if you think about what you're feeling when you get to attend conference, that inspiration, that networking you get, the development you get, how can we be there for you, your voice, and be there for you 365 days of the year? So when you think about my vision for the future, 
it's more moments and more experiences if you've had the chance to experience our national conference or one of our regional leadership development workshops how do we use technology to make sure we can make more of those moments with you and engage the membership and deliver the value to our partners in that way I, I know that the organization recently did some some work and partnered with the McKinsey organization which I'm familiar with and I was a lot of work with McKinsey what, what, what did they do with you? What, were, what was the project you were working on, and what did you, what did you learn through the process? Yeah, so McKinsey, in conjunction with the leanin.org, have been publishing the Women in the Workplace study. What we did as the WFF, uh, in support of that, we garnered many of the food industry companies to forward their data in so that the population of the total company set had a significant number of food service companies in that database. So now when McKinsey and Lean-In publish their Women in the Workplace study, we're able to have a cut of that study that's very specific to what's going on with women in our industry. And so that's our role in that. Actually, the results for the 2019 study uh, came out just recently, and we're in the process of encouraging the food service companies to get ready and submit for 2020. Uh, once again, but it's been one of those things that we've been able to leverage so that we had our view in this industry to exactly what might be going on as a, the implications to women advancing and really getting to gender equality in the work environment and with the workforce. So we talk a lot in our, in our, in our office about key takeaways. Yeah. What are, the, what are the key takeaways? So if you're a, a company that participates in in the organization and you've been you know, partnering on, what, what are the expectations of the companies themselves in terms of what they've learned from this work and where you're going to be driving this work as you take, take control of the organization? Yeah, so what we'd like, what we're looking to do with even the work coming out of the workplace study, which gives us direction on how we're doing, right? We're looking to do a success roadmap that will help you assess if this is what's going on in the study, if this is what the findings are, how can we assess as a company where we're at on the journey to gender equity? And therefore, where do I need to lever? You know, what are the things I need to do to move further down to the path we want to be on? So just having that roadmap that helps you take findings to an assessment of your own organization so you can better target where you might need development or you might need process or procedure changes, or you might need a better pipeline. It'll help guide where they should be focusing their efforts to make actual progress. It would be similar to, we've always had the individual competency assessment for all of our members that allowed them to create their own development plan based on the skills you, you need in, as you go through your food service industry career. This would be an organization's assessment on its journey to gender equity. So that's what we're hoping to add as an additional value to our partners who participate in the study and you get the results and understand the findings and where you are, but now how do we go and what do we do from there? So we're, we're public policy guys. Uh -huh. right? So from a, from a public policy lens, you know, one of the platforms of the industry for a number of years are public-facing platforms that we're an industry opportunity. Right. And I've always been struck, and we've talked on this podcast before, I've always been struck that, you know, the restaurants, the actual units themselves, are very diverse entities. They're right. Very diverse businesses. We've got even split men and women. We've got different races. We have everything. And the further you get away from that restaurant, toward that corporate ladder, the less diverse it looks. And if we're going to be an industry of opportunity, then we've got to be an industry of opportunity everywhere. 
That's right. You can't have that disconnect at the corporate office yep. or in field management if we're going to be an industry of opportunity. So to the extent that you know, what you're doing is helping, believe it or not, you're helping us be more authentic in that message. That's right. We are an industry of Yeah, so what you're talking about is, is what the workplace study, as one of the findings said, women are stuck in what they call the broken rung. So they're getting left behind earlier in their career. So when you're seeing what looks like a large population of women coming through or entering in food service, for every 100 entry-level men who are promoted to manager, only 72 women are promoted. And then women of color are getting even further behind. There are 68 Latinas to every 100 men and 58 black women. So what's happening, it's very early on, as that first promotion to manager happens, they call it the broken rung. That's where the leakage of women starts happening. So if it's starting that early, you can imagine trying to really make the shift as we go along is going to be difficult. And that is one of the findings in the workplace study. And then women, and again, women particularly of color are unrepresented in the workplace. Although we're getting 48% of entry-level employees, we're only getting 21% at the C-suite. So you see the drain as it goes through. Well, you know, we're right now at the Black Box Intelligence Conference, which right. is made up of companies that take this very seriously and take what they're doing very seriously in this space. And so it's a natural partnership that you'd be here with these companies. I know you mentioned it earlier in late March, you have your own. Yes. Yes, would be thrilled to. Yeah. So the national conference kicks off March 29th through April 1st this year. It's once again in Dallas. We have a fantastic lineup of speakers this year. Uh, we're going to be talking to Tina Brown, Jill Ellis. You might know Jill. The okay, Anna Navarro. Um, Gretchen Rubin and also Abby Wambach. Those are just our General Assembly keynotes. So you can imagine, so we have a great lineup and also as importantly we have a number of workshops that are going on, more than we had last year for choice purposes for any level you are in your career. So we have an executive track, emerging leader track, and a ton more options going on so that you can self-select and find in your entire development journey how you can take away the most you can. So we're extremely excited, and of course we'll be launching a lot of the new tools and programs that we've been excited to talk about um, at conference. Uh, but more importantly, registrations are already high, uh, higher than last year already to date. But we are approaching our early bird special deadline. So anyone who's hoping to jump and get registration uh, before prices go up, mid-February is a key date. Uh, well, yeah, I should tell you that. The website is um, WFFCONF, short for conference, dot WFF.org. And registration is open, and we'd love to have everyone there. It's an amazing opportunity to inspire, connect with a wonderful group of women and male leaders, and get the development and skills and experiences that are unmatched in any conference, my opinion, that exists out there for food industry leaders. Well, uh, we're excited. Uh, you know, Frank and I were talking uh, before you came over. You know, look through your 
resume and your understanding of large businesses and brands and unit workings of those companies, having somebody with your skill set as job is going to be uh, fun to watch. So we wish you great luck and thank you for stopping by the Working Lunch Podcast. Well, thank you. And I've enjoyed the hallway podcast. <laughs> it's been quite a noisy experience, but at least they know it's real. Right? Thank you. Thank you. So Franklin, I think the Women's uh, Food Service Forum is in, in good hands. The future looks bright. Indeed it does. And uh, it is needed. We need to focus on this. We need to be creating pathways opportunity for everyone. Uh, women especially but you know all everyone and um if we don't get better at this we can expect that there will be government intervention at some point in the future or at least third party intervention whether those are labor groups or whatever california mandating that you have to have women on your board right holding a number of seats the eo1 we could go on and on this this things bubble up time to time and again in different jurisdictions we would be uh, foolhardy not to get there on our own pace because it's only going to benefit the organizations uh, that we all work with. And uh, otherwise, we're going to be forced to uh, by regulators or policymakers or someone else. We, we just have a glaring, there's a glaring disconnect, a, a delta between the diversity of our dining rooms and the diversity of our boardrooms. And it's noticeable. And, you know, if we're going to be the industry of opportunity, then we've got to be in the industry of opportunity. We've got to be industry of opportunity at the, at the restaurant level and at the corporate level. So, anyway, I'm, I'm really impressed with Therese, I think a great hire for Women's Food Service Forum and um, best of luck to them. It's time for the legislative scorecard where we go around the country and update you on the key legislative and regulatory developments that happened this week. And as always, we start with wages. Uh, Franklin, up to New England we go. Yeah, New Hampshire, the Senate passed legislation to raise the minimum wage $12 an hour by 2023. The House passed its own version of this bill, $15 an hour by 2025. So they're working on negotiating compromise legislation. Will it matter? Probably not because they probably don't have enough votes to override a gubernatorial veto. Um, It's certainly not for like a $15 an hour measure. So we'll watch how this process plays out, but it's probably 2020 posturing um, at the end of the day. I bet Governor Sununu cannot wait to veto this thing. Yeah. Just can't wait. Uh, over to Ohio. We reported on this last week, but a little more progress in this process happened this week with regard to the ballot initiative. It's been certified by the AG and now goes to the Ohio Ballot Board for final approval and then signature gathering can begin. That's $13 an hour by 2025. So they are off to the races. If that puppy gets on the ballot, I don't think. It has any chance of being blocked. Yeah, and we got to look at the timing. I don't know when the signature deadline is and, and all that, but the, the long and short of it is that they have a lot of time. I mean, they have many months here to uh, to put it together. So uh, we will be watching that closely and probably reporting every couple weeks on it. And right next door in Pennsylvania, governor's making some noise this week regarding minimum wage. Yeah, and this has been going on for some months now, if you'll remember. The governor is calling for a minimum wage increase, but you'll remember before the holidays, his labor department was essentially going to uh, raise the overtime threshold. Republicans in the legislature saying, no, don't do that, and we'll pass a moderate minimum wage increase. I think that deal is probably still on the table until the overtime rules finally go into effect, and that will still be a little bit of time. So this is the governor kind of amping up pressure. Deal making. They're they're playing a little chicken game here, right? Yep, 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 yep. And I think the employer community would like, and they've got to all get on the same page here, but would like to put 
a minimum wage increase out there to get the overtime threshold lower or pull back. And staying up in that part of the country, back to Vermont, uh, minimum wage again. Same situation, kind of the same situation as in New Hampshire. Certainly the same situation as we have in paid leave in Vermont. And uh, the House has passed this compromise legislation, 12.55 an hour by 2022. They lowered that from $15 an hour to try to draw more votes and get that veto-proof majority. They did not get that veto-proof majority. I think they fell short by like eight votes that the governor is going to veto this thing. Once it lands on his desk, he has five days to review it, and then he can decide whether or not he wants to sign it or veto it. So that process is underway. I think everyone expects it's going to be a veto. And yet again, this is a big kind of 2020 thing happening here. I'm amazed that Vermont and New Hampshire are just mere, literally mirror images of each other. Democrats run both chambers in both states, Republican governors in both states. There's a pretty diverse Democratic coalition in both states, and they have trouble getting the progressives and the moderates on the same page, getting on paid leave and minimum wage, the same model, getting, they can pass it, but they can't pass it with enough votes to override a veto. It's just same state, same setup, same issues, same outcomes. Pretty pretty interesting to watch. Yeah, and I think Vermont is one of those that if a dim gets in that governor's mansion. Katie bar the door. Yeah, yeah, look out. New Hampshire has always had kind of this independent streak like Arizona. So it's it's that's a it's a little less certain even with a dim trifecta. But anyway, Vermont, you could see some changes in the future in that state. And speaking of Katie bar the door, we've said all along that uh, once once Virginia got single party rule that uh, the floodgates would open and multiple minimum wage bills are working their way through Richmond right now. They are. And I think the business community's best chance here is the fact that there are multiple bills and they're very different and very complicated. And it's a short session. So the two main vehicles, here's what we're working with. Um, The House bill, $15 an hour by 2025. It would increase the tip wage to 70% of the state minimum. That's a big deal. The Senate version has been amended to include this little hitch that we've actually seen this in other jurisdictions. But the bottom line is if you provide health benefits, then uh, that that essentially lowers your your minimum wage rate. And you essentially get kind of a credit towards your minimum wage rate. And that would start in 2023 once you get over $11 an hour in terms of the escalating mandate. So here's the deal. Two different bills advancing. These are the primary vehicles. They're very different and they'll continue to be very different. At some point, the upper and lower chamber have to reconcile those two bills and of course pass them. I think we all believe that there's political commitment to get this done, but it's going to be a whirlwind session in Richmond. So. Well, I was I was amazed. It was you know it's the Senate president's bill that got watered down. He lost control of his own bill and was against these kind of the watering down with the health care credit and and so forth. Interesting to watch that play out. Switching uh, to on the on the corporate side, Walmart's kind of playing with their starting wage again and a l- little bit of a an experiment. Yeah, and Walmart has been redoing its entire operation within its store for a while now with um you know they kind of scaled back the number of people working but then they scaled up entry-level wages and they created these pathways uh to management and they started the walmart academies and so they have been kind of uh testing and failing forward if you will you know if we can borrow a, a tech term um in this space for a while and they're testing a new pilot 
And this is essentially they would starting wage jobs, twelve dollars an hour, and they're doing it in uh, fifty stores. And you know, it's, they're upping this entry level wage, and they're creating these pathways. It's five hundred stores. It's a, it's a big swath of stores. Oh, thank you. And then um, the, the the test here is: does this enhance customer experience? Are workers happier? You know, and but it's so. the, but it's the continual ratcheting up of those entry level wages, and that puts pressure on the marketplace, puts pressure for all employers, and so that's why it's kind of important to keep note of what's going on in that space. Franklin switching to paid leave, Colorado. Last year, they created a task force, a, a paid paid family medical leave task force that has met all throughout 2019 numerous times. And they have submitted all those recommendations to the legislature, to the, back to the governor and so forth. And it looks like that process is coming to fruition. Yeah, it, we all thought we're going to end up with paid family leave in Colorado last legislative session. And the funding mechanism, they couldn't figure that out at the, towards the end of session. And so they set up this task force. And as you said, Joe, they've been working away at it. I think the expectation is what has come out of that task force is going to be pretty close to a final product. So... You know, while technically this may be a, a bill introduction, it's it's much more than that because the the law or the policy making process never really stopped between last session and this session. So anyway, that task force is going to pop a pop a bill in, top, pop legislation in that probably is going to be on the glide path, and so it's going to happen essentially any day now, and it, it is going to outline kind of 20 recommendations. Yeah, expect that you're probably going to end up with something. The big question will be, as it is in every jurisdiction, who's going to pay for it and what's that split going to look like, and we've seen this creep to putting a large percentage on the employer and less of a percentage on the employee. So we'll see where Colorado lands in that. I mean, it, it was pretty smart for the proponents of, of paid leave that to, you know, usually these task forces, not usually, I should say, often you see these task forces kind of pro forma, you know, a little dog and pony for the cameras, rally the troops. But they really took this process seriously. They barnstormed the state. They had hearings all over the place, thousands of comments and, you know, dozens and dozens of hours of testimony. They worked out all the kinks publicly, to your point. So this final package is pretty much in a consensus package at this point is, is what the expectation is. What a noble concept. Yeah, so I, I think they call that good governance. I don't, I don't know. It's crazy. Uh, back up to Vermont. The governor has until Saturday night, so, yeah, so the, February 1st, I guess, Saturday night to, uh, to veto the paid leave bill. Vermont, five days once the legislation hits the governor's desk. So why that matters, potentially, potentially, I don't think – Vermont is going to go back and look at paid leave or minimum wage again, but potentially they could, right? Because the governor has five days, he's got to sign or veto it. So that still gives time for the legislature to go back and, and look at Do it all over again. Yeah. So th- this early in the process, getting these bills advanced to the governor's desk and then having, you know, some governors can sit on, sit on bills forever, right? You know, months. And so having that five-day window may actually come into play here. So we'll see what happens on Saturday, and we'll see if the legislature actually responds to that, you know, next week or the next. So, And, and going out to Washington State, this is a really interesting uh, storyline with regard to the new paid leave program out there um, and the unanticipated amount of uh, usage, i.e., and the associated unanticipated amount of cost, 
uh, with it. Frank, what happened in Washington State, and, and why does it matter? Yeah, and Washington State passed a paid family leave program in, like, 1942. <laughs> and, like, literally, like, 10 years. I think they were the first state to pass paid family leave. They were right around the time California did. I mean, literally, it's like, 15 years. 10 years ago, I don't know, it was a long time ago. But they didn't get around to actually writing the rules around and standing up the program until basically last year. And now it's a disaster because within the first 30 days or whatever, I guess it went into effect January 1, they have been just hammered. I think it was like, like I don't 20, have 20,000. I think they had, I thought it was 60,000. 22,000 applications. They, what, what they viewed they'd get in the first three months of the program, they got in the first three weeks of the program. And it has shut it down. Just completely collapsed it under its own weight. So this is not only like new parents, but this is also caring for, you know, sick relatives and all the different provisions in the in the paid leave thing there. So um, if they got the numbers off that much, that also you would think they got the budget numbers off that much as well. And so you would think all the modeling is wrong. You would think all the modeling is wrong. And so we need to watch that closely as this conversation plays out in other states that there, there, there may be more draw on these kinds of programs and i.e. more cost and then make them, of course, more politically unpalatable for a lot of people. But uh, just is it really interesting? You know, Washington State, by and large, pretty buttoned down place. You know, and if they blew this paid leave thing that bad, you know, other places could do it too. So it's just kind of interesting. Um, staying out in Washington, Franklin, uh, they had a little activity this week on the scheduling. They have multiple scheduling bills. So the word in the street is that they are not buttoned down in this issue right now, which is interesting because heading into legislative session, we thought, man, they've been looking at this forever. They've got it in the books in Seattle. Like this thing is going to sail through. I mean, and they're all in violent agreement that, shit, that something needs to be done in this space, right? Yes. They don't know what, what. Yes. And Oregon, obviously, has done some, you know, their neighbor, right? So they tend to look over their shoulder. And anyway, the word in the street this week is that, you know, there's a lot of disagreement a- about what this should look like and that, you know, with the short legislative session, things may slow down. I don't know. I'm skeptical. I'm still watching the process. The bottom line, though, is a labor committee heard the bill, didn't advance it. You know, the House companion hasn't even moved. I think there's three committee assignments for both the House and the Senate versions. And basically, this thing isn't moving right now, which is good news for, for the business community. I'm a little bit skeptical that this is this thing's in the gutter, but uh, it may be headed that way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we've, we've seen that in other states, you know, they do this kind of, something gets loved to death. Something gets loved yeah. to death and they can't get out of their own way. And we've seen that with, you know, we've watched what's happening in, in, in New Hampshire on that. Yeah. So the Washington session is very, very short. And so uh, who knows what's going to happen up there. Frank, let's move on to labor policy, um, up the federal government, little activity on the PRO Act. Yeah, Nancy Pelosi is had delayed this thing. We had um, USMCA, obviously impeachment. We've had all this stuff going on. And quite frankly, I don't know that Nancy Pelosi really wants to put all her members, you know, the the ones that come from purple or red districts, on the record, on a bill like this. But the bottom line is the unions do want to put all those members on the record, on their core issues. And so they have been pushing the PRO Act. They have over 200 co-signers in the legislation now. And essentially, this is a wish list. We talk about EFCA, and you are you have battle scars from the Employee Free Choice Act, what it was called, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was labor's big priority during, during the Obama administration. That ain't nothing compared to this. This is 
an uber rewrite of labor law that has not been seen in 40, 50, maybe 60 years. I mean, this is this is the wish list of wish list. So the design here is for unions to put Democrats on the record on this. They've already got all the presidential candidates have committed to all the items in here. They want to put all the 2020 congressional candidates on the record, too. And they want to move the Democrat Party to the left in all these issues. So anyway, that'll be up for a vote next week. But it doesn't sure, matter. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. I'm sure Mitch is just waiting for it to come on over. Yeah, and yet again, but this is more about moving those moderate Dems to the left on these issues um, when they're trying to get those endorsements and that money hidden in 2020. And Franklin, heading back to uh, stateside, Massachusetts Attorney General made some news this week against one of our bigger brands in the industry. 13,000 child labor law violations, Joe. Not a headline you you often see in this country. That's that's a bad day for... At over 50 locations, cumulative 13,000 child labor law violations. Now, to their credit, that sounds like a software glitch or a misinterpretation of hours of work or day of week or school night type stuff. It, you know, it doesn't seem like a... It can't be a malicious intentional intent, but nonetheless, you know... Nonetheless, you... uh, need to be in compliance with those child labor laws. That's an important That's why, you know, God made software and God made lawyers. I don't know how you can be that far out of compliance. So $1.3 million fine. And while they were at it, they just had a look-see at the the paid leave compliance. And that was an additional, I don't know, half to a million dollars. So pushing the total price tag over two mil uh, for Chipotle. It's a lot of burritos. We just left this HR conference and there were a lot of software companies there and there was a lot of discussion around this type of compliance. Every week, not in the scale, we see issues, you know, with compliance. We just went through this thing in Connecticut, tip credit. You know, we are becoming increasingly reliant on these software systems and not the paper schedule in the wall or the these glitches happen and they happen routinely. And man, you, if you don't catch them early on, then you are, there's a huge level of exposure, particularly as these wage theft laws are being passed that are upping the ante in you, terms of damages, but also in terms of potential criminal liability. But, so, you've, but you've, you, know, you, you partner with these third party, you know, whether it's payroll folks or scheduling software, other, other types of stuff, you, you think there's some embedded safe harbor in there that you as an employer have done, try to do the responsible thing. You've try to automate the newest technology to make sure you're, and then when those glitches happen, it still seems like the employer gets pummeled. New segment for another day, Joe. I mean, we should be coming up with a safe harbor, safe harbor model legislation that amps up enforcement, but provides very clear safe harbors. And we should take model legislation around the country because this type of stuff, I mean, it just, it just shouldn't happen. You know, one way it just shouldn't happen, but but it was, it does because everything's so complicated, right? So, anyway, let's move along. Franklin, I don't think there's been a segment on this scorecard where we haven't gone back out to Washington State. So, and we'll be quick with this. We've talked about this before. It's just worth noting that you know marijuana law and employment law are crashing into one another in states across the country. It's a huge gray area in the law. And Washington State is potentially wading into it, and that's why we're paying attention to it. And specifically what they're looking at right now is the pre-employment hiring process. The argument that's being made is, you know, marijuana is legal or at least decriminalized in the state. And so if you're participating in that and then you're, you know, trying to get hired to a job, currently in the state, you can have drug-free workplace policies. So essentially what could happen is, you know, you get hired into a job and 
be enjoying legal marijuana and then all of a sudden lose your job three days in because you know you tested positive. This essentially would create kind of a grace period that would allow for new hires to be in compliance with drug-free workplace policies. I would point out that those drug-free workplace policies don't account for prescription marijuana in that state or in other states, and we've seen that in the courts. And so this is a complicated, jumbled area of law and one that we should pay attention to this conversation in Washington State and other states as well because it's just continuing to uh, shake out day by day. And you can, when, when, when that marijuana law collides with that employment law, can't you just call that joint employer? Well done. Thank well you. Done, Thank Joe. you. I've been working on that for a dozen seconds or more, waiting for you to finish that sentence. That was great. Yeah. It's good. And Franklin, lastly, uh, going back up to Vermont again, uh, there's some uh, Franchise Bill of Rights stuff working up there. Man, we're starting to see this thing pop up everywhere now. So we've had in California, Florida, and Alabama. It went way deep into the process in, in California and Alabama, which tells you how potentially politically exposed we are. Those are not jurisdictions that are often linked together yeah. in terms of political trend lines. Yep. Florida kind of fell apart you know, relatively early in the process. Anyway, Vermont, we now have this franchisee bill of rights. I'm being told that it's worse than the others. Haven't read it, don't really know, but it is definitely something you need to put on your radar. It's just been introduced. It really hasn't started moving yet, but we saw in Alabama and California, once the thing got a head of steam, it was tough to slow down and, and eventually kill those bills. Just the political dynamics didn't work in our favor. So you need to be paying attention to this, guys. All right. Well, that's the scorecard this week. And uh, it's starting to get that time of year where this, you know, the pedal to the metal in a lot of these state legislatures, and it's going fast and furious. So the scorecard's getting a little, little denser each week. But um, we'll have more for you next week. Well, guys, that wraps up Working Lunch Podcast number 150. We're all over the board. Franklin and I were in Dallas for most of the show, calling in, doing it live, doing it here. It's It's been uh, quite a creative week. But we'll start off, we'll end the show where we started the show. It's Super Bowl. you got to do predictions. So I'm going to start with Mr. Coley. You may have heard that I know Sunday night's your night where you spend a lot of hours on linetopitems.com, getting it ready for the week. But there's a little game on the same time. And, uh, Mr. Coley, who are I you used, picking? I used to do those types of things while I watched college basketball, but not this year, my friends. You know, I'll go with Kansas City. I'm more a Kansas City than a San Francisco guy. So I'm you gonna, think they're going to win or you're America. pulling for them? You think they're going to win or you're pulling for them? I, I'll just say both. I'm, I lead with my heart, Joe. So I, it's, it's hard It's hard to unwrap the heart, the heart and the mind. I'm going to do the opposite. <laughs> that, 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 that assumes you have one or either of both. <laughs> Uh, I am pulling for Kansas City, but I think San Francisco is going to win, right? I mean, defense, we've just seen it time and time again. I, I'm kind of – It's pretty even in the odds. I actually like both teams. Even. I'm yeah. actually yeah. – and, and I don't have a dog in the fight. You know, my team is far away from me in Super Bowl. And I actually kind of like both teams. I like both coaches. I'm really excited about it. I, if I were going to Vegas, I would be betting on uh, uh, San Francisco. But if KC won, I'd be thrilled for Andy Reid. If San Francisco wins, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of jazzed up for this game for the first time in a long time. I'm not a Patriots hater. I am not at all, and a lot of respect for what they've done. But I'm glad that there's something somebody, somebody yeah, else can first, be in the game for once, in, you know. And, um, anyway, so so San Francisco, me, San Francisco, you, and Franklin is going with KC. That's right. All and right. I think everybody's hoping for overtime. There you have it. See you next week. Mm-hmm.